Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Ben-Murgy. Not that kind of rabbi has been on a bit of a sabbatical, I must say. I haven't been doing very much on the NTKR tip for quite a while. Uh, by the way, I find it, in, uh, is it H? When people say a drop, uh, you know, a new episode drops on Saturday, I'm like, do you even know where that came from? Because they don't. And then you go, you see, you used to drop the needle on the vinyl. And that's, uh, that was where drop started. And now it, everybody uses it. When I hear people who are, like, you know, my age and using it, I just think, oh, stop. Don't try to be him. It's upsetting. So, so that's just one of those annoyances. Anyway, my point was I, I, I kind of backed off for a while because I had way too many things going at the same time and it just was being stretched too far. Um, but in that time, I started sort of thinking about different ways of doing this, this program. And uh, by the way, if you feel like you want to support what, what we're doing here, just um, go to Patreon, uh, NT, patreon.com slash NTKR not that kind of rabbi. So patreon.com. We have people who donate uh, uh, different small and larger amounts on, on the, uh, on the account. And we really appreciate it. It's, it's a really kind thing to do. Um, I do this podcast out of love uh, and, and uh, I do other podcasts like uh, uh the one I do for the Canadian Jewish News, Yehobitsville. And yes, I, I love doing them, but this one's really my baby. And I've decided I, I, I want to get married and share the baby for a while. So see, see what happens before the unseemly divorce that ensues. Uh -huh. so, so to do that, um, a friend of mine, somebody who I met, the first time I met him was when he was in full bloom doing uh, beautiful work. Vehafta, uh, uh, some of you may know that organization. And what I loved about what he was doing was I'd grown up in this environment where Jewish people who do good things do th good things for other Jewish people. That's what you do, right? We help each other, you know, and or Israel or something. And uh, here was somebody through Vehafta who was helping people on the street. It didn't matter who, who they were, whether they were Jewish was irrelevant. He was helping people on the street in that money where your mouth is kind of way where, you know, for the rest of us, we walk by and have our thoughts. Oh, what if I forgive, give this guy money? He's just going to drink it away. If I do, you know, uh, you know, other people who are abusive and unkind to people as they walk by them, especially young, when they see young people and they think, what's wrong with you? Go get a job. And they have no idea what people are going through. So here was somebody who was doing this kind of work uh, with an open heart. Uh, and it's really, it, it's really hard work to do. It's not just, oh, no problem. I'm doing a gig. You really have to do a lot. So I had a ton of respect for him. And every once in a while, we would bump into each other um, a little bit more lately. So I thought to myself, Avram Rosenzweig, wouldn't it be fun to do Not That Kind of Rabbi with him so we can share our ideas about where we are, both of us on our spiritual path, and what thoughts we have about the world we see around us. And yes, through a Jewish lens, but also through a few different lenses at the same time. So all that to say that I'd like to introduce you to Avram Rosenzweig. How are you, you, sir? I'm very well, and I'm delighted to know that I'm uh, now married to you. <laughs> <laughs> I woke up single. <laughs> What's your supper? <laughs> Beans and hash. Excellent. It's going to be a vegetarian hash, because as you well know, being my, my partner, that I'm a veggie. Um, so uh, what made you want to say yes to doing this? Well, firstly, I like you. I, I find you a very, very fascinating human being. And having read your book now, uh, even more so, you are a fine writer. You really are. Thank you very much. Yeah, you really are. You got to pursue writing in a big way. Uh, you've had a really interesting career. I find that compelling. You're Jewish. You're Moroccan in some bizarre way. I don't know any Moroccans like you. And uh, I thought, my God, this would be interesting. And plus, you have a very high profile. And I figure I'd ride on your coattail for a while. 
All right, hey, I'm going to stop there for this one thing where you and I had a conversation a while ago and you told me something that uh, somebody had said about me that you knew and I, I was hurt by it. So it was a Moroccan who said, when you said my name, he's the least Moroccan person I, I know, right. know of. And that really hurt me. I really thought, what is that supposed to mean? That I, I, I don't I don't go to the Moroccan synagogue, that I don't have a slight Spanish accent. What, 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 you know, yeah, I grew up with Eastern European Jews, no doubt, Ashkenazim, the neighborhood I lived in. Um, there was one other Moroccan in, in, in West Prep and Forest Hill Junior High and Forest Hill Collegiate. And they were actually wasn't Moroccan, Greek, um, uh, the Dassaz family. Uh, but when I heard that, I just thought, so you sort of see me as a sellout that I went the the, the Ashka, not you, but the person who said it. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think number one is your politics are much different than the general Moroccan Jewish community. You're 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 a little bit left of center, and, and that doesn't really jive with the folks who go to Tiferet or go to Magin David or Petafikba, which are the uh, Sephardic synagogues. They're generally very right wing. Yeah. Right. Oh yes. Right. You, yeah. You're also you're also very erudite, and and this is no offense whatsoever to the Moroccan community because I find their culture is actually very beautiful, and I enjoy it, and I've partaken in a lot of their uh, simplos, their affairs, and so on. Uh, but you're you're different uh, than most. Your language is different. Your pronunciations are different. Your your thinking is different. I I think the person who said it to me who was actually a very dear friend. I'm not sure he meant it as criticism. I don't, uh, negative criticism. Uh, I think he was just making a statement of fact is Ralph is a little bit different than most Moroccans. And if anything, quite frankly, I actually think it might have been an endearing thing. I, I think there's a lot of people out there who are very, uh, almost envious of where you've gone with your life. You're very universal in nature. You see the world as a globe, not just a particular area. And, and I think that has touched a lot of people. My guess is when you go into the Sephardic community that they, they probably welcome you uh, with open arms. So, oh yeah, the people they grew up with are, are because we're all family. Like you know, we that's right. One of the beautiful things about um, having a religion that brought us together and coming from the same city, you know, this small group of Jews from Tangier who came to Toronto, and we had our world within a world. Now, I. I I totally loved it, but I also was very aware that as an immigrant, I had to figure out what the format and the code of the society I was in looked like. Well, how do people speak here? What do they do? Uh, my father, uh, you know, uh, Moroccan through and through, he ends up glomming on to hockey because hockey is the closest thing to, to football, to soccer that he can find. There's a net, there's a goalie, there's defense, there's forwards, you know, it's like, okay, I get this, you know? And so he would bring his Moroccan passion to watching a hockey game, like that kind of soccer passion. So we would be sitting there watching the game on a black and white TV. And, uh, you know, Jim Pappin or something, get a breakaway. Somebody would get a breakaway, Ronnie Ellis. And my father would get out of his seat and start walking towards the TV going, okay, 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 okay. And then if we scored, me and my brothers and my father would all yell, scores, top of our lungs. So then I'd, I'd go to an Ashkenazi friend's house and be watching a hockey game with them. And we, the Leafs would score and I'd scream, scores. And they'd look <laughs> at me like, what the hell is wrong with that guy? Yeah. Right? So it, it is that kind of thing. So with your Judaism and you did not grow up in Toronto. No. So when you see yourself in the constellation of what Jews are around here, around this country, where do you fit? Mm -hmm. So I was born in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada in 1960. My father, God bless his soul was the rabbi, which means my mother was the rabbitson. 
And I often add that because when you grow up in a rabbinical home, you see that the father is the front guy and the mother, the Rebbitzin, is behind the scenes, but her job is equally as important. And my mother worked very, very, very hard to take care of my sisters and I, the five of us. And also my father used to have, a, he had a tendency of bringing strangers home to the house and they would come live with us, sometimes for a day, sometimes for a week, often for a month. And then there were a couple who lived with us for a few years and we were not rich by any stretch. We were classic middle class. We had a small house in Kitchener. Um, so I grew up there and I had my challenges because being the rabbi's only son, there were a lot of expectations on me. He used to call me his go'on and his tzaddik, his little righteous guy. At some point, Ralph, I asked him to stop saying that. Why? Because I couldn't live up to it. I was kind of embarrassed at who I was. I wasn't what he wanted me to be. And he sent me to yeshiva, which is a private Talmudic school in Toronto when I was 13 years old, as he did with each one of my sisters the moment they turned 13. Um, and I was found myself in a Haredi environment. Do you want to explain Haredi? You could probably do it better than me. Uh, well, no, I mean, Haredi is um, a, an extension of everything from Hasidism to just... Um, Orthodox conservative Judaism, right? So that it is for many, some go towards the mystical uh, and some go toward the literal. There's no one way Haredim do right. their thing. And there's sects of Haredis, you know, so you can, you can be, uh, you go by hat, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Right. What hat is it, are they wearing? Which is interesting, by the way, as a side note, is that the Sephardim, who, when we came to, to Canada, one of the things that happened is we were a traditional people, not an Orthodox people. Yeah. yeah. And But if you're traditional and you look around and you see the sort of buffet Judaism is the way we saw it, you know, you can be reform, you can be reconstruction, you can be, you guys choose. You know, I'd go to a friend's house, open the fridge, and there'd be bacon on the shelf. And I'd just be staring at, first of all, why am I opening your fridge? Which was so me. And then I'm staring at it, and your mother walks in and goes, can I help you, Raphael? And, and I'm like, no, I'm good. And I'd go home, i go, ma, you, you, they have literally have bacon in their fridge. And she just said, they don't care. They're just doing what they do. They're... So we end up with the people of my generation who, who decided to to go all in, that they now dress like Ashkenazi uh, Orthodox Jews. That's right. Right? So that was weird. Anyway, okay. So you uh, you found yourself at Yeshiva in a Haredi environment. Yes, I did. And I uh, remember my first day in Yeshiva, my first week, my first month. Uh, it was as if they had uh, dropped me onto Mars uh, because I had come from a public school in Kitchener. And uh, it was a, a bit of a difficult school, if you will. Um, it's like tough guys. I experienced anti-Semitism in Kitchener. And, and here I am. I come to Toronto. Um, and I'm surrounded by these guys who have grown up in the uh, yeshiva system, uh, in the very orthodox yeshiva system. Um, and, 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 and the dress was far more conservative than I was used to. I remember... Well, when I was leaving Kitchener, uh, it was 13, it was 1973, it was kind of a disco-ish time, and I bought uh, yellow suede shoes <laughs> for my new year, right? <laughs> and as I walk into Yeshiva, and I see all these guys walking around, some with the peyut, the side curls, right. you know. Of course, we had to wear the hats, of which you've mentioned, for our services, um, and I promptly took these yellow suede shoes and I tossed them in the garbage. Uh -huh. um, so it was a real challenging time. I was emotionally very almost distraught the first year. I failed a couple of courses. I had a very hard time. That transition from where I had come to, you know, again, from Kitchener, basically leaving my father's house, taking off my kippah, my skull cap, because I was too frightened and I just wasn't comfortable wearing it coming to yeshiva where the expectations were that you would follow a halachic lifestyle and learn our, our schedule started at 7 30 in the morning 
and we ended at 10 o'clock at night. So this was a different world for me. And that's where I started. So you throw out the yellow suede shoes. Yes. Which is probably a pretty sad moment, right? I, I would say so in retrospect, yes. You know, you really have to figure that out. Like, who am I and why am I doing this? So did you stay? Did you did you stay to the to the bitter end of it all? Because that's what your father wanted? So I'm a, I'm a bit of a chameleon. I think like you and others, I can adjust uh, quite well uh, to different environments. I stayed in that yeshiva for five years, and then I went to I went to uh, Beit Talmud in Jerusalem, Sanhedria, which is right uh, over the Green Line, um, and that was uber Haredi. I recall going to class one of the first days and wearing white pants. I like to be a little bit hip, even in, even in that environment. White linen pants. And one of the yeshiva bachrim, one of the students came over to me very angrily and says, Mazat what are those shrouds? And then after that, I found myself having to defend my father, who was, again, a rabbi in Kitchener, an Orthodox rabbi, but in a shul, a synagogue, that he had to adjust to it. There was no mechitza down the middle. Right, no, no border, be. no wall between the men and women. Yes, and I found myself having to defend him and our lifestyle and how we grew up. It was a very bizarre environment, but I will tell you one thing. That the yeshiva never left me. And when I started Via Hafta, which you mentioned, which was a non-profit and still exists, a fine organization, I retired from there. Um, I brought yeshiva to it. So every time we would have a meeting, there would be a Dvar Torah. There would be words of Torah. You know, we kept kosher. It was really important to me that the Ahavta had that Jewish flavor. And today I spend much of my day learning Torah and teaching. So you found your way back to doing it, but doing it in your way. So in the end, was your father right to do that with you? I would um, suggest to most parents that they do not send their children away at 13 years old. Yeah. I think it's too young. And like I said, I had a very difficult time. I remember walking to Eitz Chaim, which was a school about a mile and a half away from the yeshiva, where I took English studies. And because I had gone to yeshiva in grade nine and they didn't have English studies for me. Right. I remember it was about five o'clock in the afternoon and it was starting to get dark. Days were later or earlier. And I remember thinking to myself, Ralph, I'm 13 years old and nobody knows where I am. It's one of those narratives that stayed with me. Yeah. You know those narratives, right? Yeah. yeah. So was my father right? I think my life is very meaningful today. And much of it is because of my Judaism and much of it is because of the Torah that I learned. So in that way, he was right. Yes. You know, I was always amazed when uh, you, people would uh, talk about the uh, British, the English school system and going to boarding schools, which they mimicked here in Canada. You know, the sort of uh, white Protestant dominant culture would send their kids to these boarding schools. And I always thought, how could you? How, I got, I've had four kids. I, I just can't imagine that I would say, so, okay, go, go somewhere else and uh, you'll visit once in a while. I, I just thought it's not over. Like, you know, it's not like I want to cling, you know, to my kids for the rest of their lives. I, I really accept their own journey, but to actually make them go on this journey away from, from family and everything is very strange. Do you, are you, friends with any of the people you went to yeshiva with oh yeah oh, oh yeah oh yeah bert serfati is my buddy right and uh i'm friends with him from way back uh people like Moshe posner yidi moses and ellie rubenstein ellie rubenstein uh was somewhat of a star in yeshiva he was uh very very he's a very very bright person i met him when i was 14 he was 15 i walked into his room we lived in dormitory ralph 
Mm. Uh, which was a blast, by the way. You can imagine being 13, mm. 14 years old and being away from home and you're surrounded by another hundred guys. And we had a, a wonderful time playing ball hockey in the halls and, you know, trying to uh, find our way like so the Russian Shiva wouldn't catch us, you know, missing uh, services in the morning. And it, it was really a lot of fun that way. I walked into Ellie's room and there he was. His feet were out the window. <laughs> You remember when you were a kid, your feet used to smell a lot? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my too, by the way. And uh, and I said, uh, oh, that's interesting. He goes, yeah, my feet smell. Uh, and, and we, <laughs> we became very dear friends. And, and, and Ellie today is the spiritual leader at Congregation Abonim, which is closest to reform. It really doesn't have a denomination, but... Uh, closest to reform and he has wonderful wonderful music musicians on Yom Kippur right wow yeah, my father would roll over in his grave and I was a part of those services for many many years and I still am I'll speak this year at Nila which is the closing service on Yom Kippur so yes I'm friends with them but I'm uh, I'm friends with a few guys uh, who have gone off the path like me yeah so how many of you labor Zionist uh, I was started by Holocaust survivors. Right. Uh, I guess it has that lab labor yeah, benefit yeah, to it. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting what we end up doing, you know, with my own boys, regardless of their uh, inclination towards the, the idea of being Jewish, I needed them all to get to bar mitzvah. And then, you know, whatever they were going to do with it, at least I'd given them something that, if they don't do other things, they might do this, right? Uh, so I, I I appreciate the anchoring, but I also think it's 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 a real journey that we have to go through to reinvent, if we do at all, reinvent our relationship to our Judaism as we go through our lives, right? Because like ideas about the divine um, and other ideas, there's a high tide and a low tide to everything. There's not all high tide, you know, or else you end up with the, remember Jerusalem syndrome? Yes. Right? People who would go insane it, when they got to Jerusalem from the spiritual vortex of where it is and for their, and end up running up and down the streets claiming to be Moses or, or Jesus or something and having to, you know, spend some time detoxifying from that experience. Right. But, but when I think about what we do with, with these things, and I think about how we also live in a highly secular society, where I remember once I was uh, talking at an event at the Harbor Front or something, and I said uh, there was a Jewish music group I was introducing them, and I said at one point, that I see myself as religious uh, in my life. And then I, I talked for a few more minutes and I said, I want to go back to the thing I said, where I, I see myself, what, what you probably heard was, I see myself as crazy. So I, I wonder, you know, how, how did you reinvent your, your sense of spirit? And, and if somebody said to you today, are you religious? What would you say? Not much for those uh, labels. I uh, see myself as just being, um, sometimes I see myself as just being a human being, just a guy. And then there are other times where I see myself, someone asked me who, who, you know, name the top three things that you identify with mostly in life, I'll say as a Jew, because my Judaism has affected me a lot. But I would say that at 62 years old, uh, I've been able to kind of, merge so much of what I've seen in life and what I've experienced in terms of the Kitchener in me. You know, it's the secular. It's the growing up with non-Jews. I'm very, very grateful for the fact that I had that exposure when I was young. I really am. Because so many people that I grew up with in the yeshiva world are so isolated and have no sense of the non-Jewish world. And that's highly problematic. And it is because it, it makes them very small, very often in, in nature. And the second thing is, I think it's incumbent upon Jews to make friends uh, uh, and, and, and to extend ourselves to others and have them extend them, themselves. Why, to why us. is it important? Why is it important for Jews to make friends? 
Well, firstly, it grows Judaism. I mean, Judaism at, 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 its, at, at its height throughout the centuries, you know, it comes in cycles, as you said before. Um, the Maimonides was exposed to many, many non-Jewish philosophers, and he brought their philosophy to Judaism. And that's important because if we stay isolated and we only use the tools that we find within our own tribes, uh, Judaism will not grow in the way that I think it, it, it should or needs to. So I've taken that piece of myself and I've meshed it together with the piece of myself that I, uh, I grew through in yeshiva. And then, of course, I did all my humanitarian work through my organization, Via Hafta, which I ran for about 20 years, uh, working with the homeless, working with prostitutes. We did a lot of overseas work. We sent medical teams to Guyana and Zimbabwe. It was fascinating to be part of the world in that way. So just to cut to the chase, I've taken all those pieces and managed to bring them together. And that's who Avram Rosenzweig is today. I like to see myself as a person of the world um, who puts Judaism uh, very much front and center in terms of my learning, my growth, my ethics, my understanding of life. But by the same token, I'm quite fascinated by what Jesus has to say about kindness. Mm -hmm. you know? I'd like to I'd like to know more about the Quran and what's written in the Quran, because I think there's value in all of that. You know, Reb Zalman, who was the spiritual founder of uh, the Jewish Renewal Movement in the United States and the group that I studied with to become a spiritual director, uh, one of the courses we had to take in the three-year program was basically Reb Zalman saying it, it was called deep ecumenism. But really, his question was, how do you get it on with God? Mm -hmm. Right? And... Um, you had to go out and find somebody from something else and really sit with them and, and, and listen to them. So I went and found a wonderful friend, Marty Tyndall, who at one point was the moderator of the United Church. And I said, we sat together. She knew why I was there. And I said, I'm going to start by admitting something. I'm going to start by saying that I was brought up in a cultural milieu where the idea was to diminish the idea of Jesus Christ. That the best we could come up with was my friend's grandmother, as she was about to go upstairs to go to bed, something conversationally was going on about Jesus. And she went, Jesus Christ, he's a, he's a nice guy, but the son of God? And then went upstairs. And we loved that because we could say, you know, he's Jewish. He was just the rabbi. You know, with no credence to, to, to what it would mean to somebody else who wasn't brought up that way. So I, I said, so can you help me to understand uh, Jesus a, a little better? And she said, well, first of all, his driver's license doesn't say Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Right. Jesus of Nazareth, maybe, but not Jesus Christ. And that they are two separate things. One is particular and one is universal. And that Jesus is the man, is the human. And it is a particular small piece of representative life in a human being that we can see the divine spark in. And then she said, Christ is the cosmology. It is the universal divine flow of life. And I thought, now, I wish that had been a conversation that I've been able to have as a young person. Right? Yes, yes. And, and, and when you study the Torah, uh, you will see that God specifically says, I want to come down and I want to be amongst you, you know, hence the building of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, right, which right. there are five or six different portions in the Torah written about it and there are instructions given how to build it. God was really serious about the tabernacle, very serious. And essentially he said, I want you to be holy like I am. And in order for, for us to achieve that, I'm going to come down and I'm going to be with you. And when I studied that, I thought to myself, oh, okay, so God has a presence amongst us. Uh, not exactly the same as Jesus Christ, but components of it. So there's the, there's the thing where a lot of people get off the bus. God, he wanted, does. A, 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 a God that has a, a say in, in our lives and is not us. 
And I, over the years, have really kind of grown to a point of being able to say um, that I'm much more non-dualistic about the way I see this, that there is no, God is not a thing outside of me, something I talk to and say, hey, and I'm not doing so well right now. And, and as if there's this being that goes, let me look that up, Ralph Ben Murky. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's like we're about to go into the days of awe and we're supposed to be inscribed in the book of life. And whether or not we've done the right things this year and the mea culpa for the Christian and the vidui for us to be able to say, I've screwed up, I've, you know, I've lied, I've cheated, I've stolen, you know, and, and all that. And I, I, I get the exercise. I totally get the exercise. But for me, um, Jay Michelson wrote a good book, God is Everything, which comes at it from the sort of non-dualistic, because he also studied Buddhism quite heavily, as, as I do. Uh, and I realized that for me, this is a much more valuable way to see this, that there is a divine flow of energy in life. You know, when I uh, had some, some of my illnesses, there was a, a chance that I wasn't going to live, right? They tell you, you've got a cancer, you know, your first thought is, okay, I happen to have had five or six friends who got it, and th the news was never good after the first diagnosis. They ended up dying. So I thought, okay, well, that might be happening. So if I thought, where am I going? What is this? It didn't occur to me that I was going to go to some destination as me and have conversations with with my relatives and, you know, meet a deity or at least a administrative assistant to a deity or something, you know, it just wasn't going to happen that way. Right. But instead I saw much more of a, you know, yesterday we went rafting down the grand river. If you stop fighting it, you just, the current takes you and you flow. Right. There are other people who think it going, somebody, some, Ultra conservative said a few days ago, going with the only dead fish go with the flow. Right. And I thought, no, no, you're missing the point. Availability to what is here and now in the present. But I've never been able. So when it comes to things like prayer, for instance, you know, I, I've run groups around aging to saging, and we've we've talked about prayer. And I I have not met anyone yet who said they truly get something meaningful out of praying. They just feel like I know how to do this, but I don't actually believe I'm having a conversation with the divine. So I'd like to hear, that's a lot of stuff I'm dumping out there, but when you talk about, you know, God said, create the Mishkan, what does that actually mean? Is it literally this thing called God? This, and in our literature is this male thing that tells you to build this thing so what do right. i do with that well for first thing, I, I really want to comment i just want to really go back to the beginning of our discussion is uh, one of the reasons i'm excited about doing this with you is because you have a wonderful way with words and your insight into life uh you remember a lot you're quite the storyteller so i just want to I just want to point that out to you. You're really, you're a pleasure to listen to. You really are. Um, you don't even need me to speak. That's the truth. Uh, but listen, my sister Javi, God bless her. Her husband was murdered in 2002. David Rosenzweig. He was stabbed at the corner of Lawrence and Bathurst. Okay, yeah. Purported to be an anti-Semitic act. It wasn't. It was a guy who was a drug addict, um, who had been in 12 different foster homes. He was adopted at some point. His adoptive parents gave him back. So he was bad news. And he came over there looking for drugs near those kosher pizza shops. And um, he ultimately was sort of screwed around by some young kids sent somewhere. There were no drugs there, obviously. Came back, got a knife, stabbed my brother-in-law in the back. My brother-in-law went down dead in front of his son. And my sister, Javi, obviously suffered greatly. She went through enormous amounts of therapy, and she took her children through, through therapy. And today, I would say, thank God, 
she and her children are very, very healthy. Um, looking back on what they've gone through, the trauma that they've gone through, losing their father. She has six children. Wow. Obviously, she struggled with prayer. How do, how do you speak to God? Because she was one who would do that when God has screwed you so badly if you accept that model of life, which she does. Someone came to her and they said, look, are you crying? She said, of course. Tears, I'm sobbing all the time. So they said to her, tears are a form of prayer. And you know, Ralph, that always struck, struck with me because I, I think that's fair. I don't think everybody can have a dialogue with God, but there are people who do. I had a discussion with a Russia yeshiva on Friday, this past Friday night, a man who was a head of Orchaim Yeshiva here in Toronto. He is now one of the vice principals at Chat, a Jewish high school. And I said to him, I said, Robert, do you speak to God? He said, I do. He says, I speak with him regularly. I said, Rabbi, does he answer you? <laughs> he says in different ways, not directly. And, and that made me feel better. I think I would have a problem with someone who said that God spoke to them. My, my, my point is there is uh, not one way to approach God should you believe in God. And uh, there was a discussion in the Torah only a few weeks ago about how is one supposed to love God. And there, like everything else in Judaism, Ralph, it's a machloket. It's an argument, right? I give a couple of classes, and there's a few key words I teach my students. One of them is machloket. Why? Because you tell me black, I'm going to tell you white. That's just the way we are. So there's a machloket on how does one love God. Maimonides says he's very intellectual. He says through learning, learning Torah, learning about life. And there are other sages who say, no, it's through prayer. Uh, and then there are others who say through acts of kindness. So what does that tell you? Well, basically, the sages are really not saying that you have this direct relationship with God where you're standing in front of him. There he is. He's talking to you. You're talking to him. No, it's more of what occurred, what happens uh, from you, what comes out of you. It's the goodness that you show to others, the kindness that you show to others, because kindness is everything in Judaism. That is an expression of the divinity. And that, I believe, and that's why I did Tikkun Olam work, repairing the, the world work for so long, is because that, I believe, is something that brings me closer to that spirit, whatever it is. Mm. So there's a lot in there. It's packed. Yeah, so part of the God thing, first of all, I, I would find it, I would imagine it'd be an interesting exercise to say she instead of he for uh, two months. Fair enough. Right? To be able to say she this, she that, because one of the crises of, of Judaism is the return of the feminine divine, which we spend all Friday night trying to go, come on, seriously, get in, do your thing. Yeah. Hold on, this printer's going on again. It is not going on again. Good. Michael has to edit this out. So, so that would be an interesting exercise in and of itself, just to 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 take that gender specific idea out of the equation. Because for a lot of people, that is the problem: is trying to find out those things. So, that being a given, let me move to the other part of this, which is. Uh, David Cooper, Rabbi David Cooper's book, which I've always loved, which is God is a verb. It is not a noun. It is not a thing. It is everything. It is no thing. That there wasn't a zimzum. There wasn't a, I'm going to make some space in the, to, for this to be created. There is no outside or inside of God. God is everything. Which means God is also the, the, the man who's, stabbed your your brother-in-law you know uh that's god too uh everything is god it, not just you know when people say god is love god is goodness and i just think yes but god god is also hate because really what i'm talking about is the actions of the universe and the perpetual sense of creation the pulsing creation that a star makes a star that a person makes another person 
that an armadillo makes another armadillo, that a planet, you know, fragments or creates a new sense of itself and there's a living organism. And it's that non-dualistic approach to things that has helped me to stop being frustrated by, you know, listening to, to a, a devar from rabbis I respect who are saying, God said to us that we should do this. And, and I just think this isn't helping for a lot of people. And I've talked to, to several rabbis who really believe there's a congregational crisis going on, that people just don't have a resonance with what's being said. Now, part of that is we live in a highly rational age. So, you know, the old saw, prove God, you know, and if you can't prove God, it's like what happened to meditation, which is a spiritual and mystical practice, ends up becoming mindfulness and is measured through MRIs of Buddhist monks, you know. And I just think this need to prove on a factual, rational basis is squeezing the mystical life out of the idea of something unknowable. Because if our bottom line as Jews is that God is unknowable, then why do we keep telling people we know him? Right? It drives me nuts. It's like, what? how could you know what, what you're talking about? It's like afterlife. When I, I've listened to Haradim, I've listened to Kabbalists, and these people have an architecture for the afterlife that is very exact. And I, I, I just think, what are you doing? Like, how on earth can you be so sure about something that if you stop, you have to have the humility to say, I haven't a clue. All I can do is intuit that energy doesn't die and that things just keep happening and that this is a human moment. That's, that's all I can identify it as, a human moment of life. So that's why sometimes for me, it's, it's harder to talk about more than just a divine energy. And in that divine energy, there is choices to be made. That's all we have, choices between doing it in a healthy way or an unhealthy way with our lives. You know, you could have taken your yeshiva experience and turned it into really weaponizing your Judaism against your own Judaism and saying, you know what, it's real crap, what I went through. You know, had to go there when I was 13. These people, everybody, is a, it has to be like this. Everything has to be just like this. And I had to throw out my bloody yellow suede shoes. <laughs> right, because it was too different, right? Yes, yes. So screw you for trying to make me, you know, fit into a, a little box, that, and, and I better be walk along the right route to get to this the shul. You know, I mean, you know. Firstly, I think we should call this segment "Yellow Suede Shoes." <laughs> <laughs> it keep coming. It, it keeps coming up. I. uh yeah, I, I, I'm in sync with so much of what you're saying. I'm trying to figure out God. I'm trying to figure out Torah. I'm trying to figure out the Jewish people. Two and a half years ago, a new cycle of Duff Yomi started. Ralph, Duff Yomi is fascinating. Essentially what it is, it's taking the entire uh, Talmud and learning one page, both sides, every day for seven and a half years. Right. And, and the Talmud is a really complex set of ideas and issues, uh, things that are argued upon through storytelling, you know, through through debate, through dialogue, uh, through uh, bringing evidence from other cultures. It's very, very difficult. I started learning it when I was 13 years old, when I went to Yeshiva. If two people own a piece of land and there's a fence in the middle and that fence falls, who's responsible for repairing it and how much do you have to contribute? 13 years old, nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so two and a half years ago, I started really, really learning Talmud seriously. I actually did, after an interview I did with Rabbi Karopkin, who's a rabbi here in Toronto at pretty much the biggest Orthodox synagogue in North America, or one of them, the Bayat Synagogue. Um, and he asked me why I had given up orthodoxy. He asked me if something sexually happened to me in yeshiva, all these different types of questions, which it didn't. And, uh, and thereafter, I really started to consider who I was and where I sat within this whole Jewish thing. One has to remember where I come from. I'm ensconced in Judaism. I always have been in various, various different levels. 
So I started learning two and a half years ago. And as of today, I've finished 14 track dates. Um, do I know a lot more? I know a tiny little bit more. And then I started learning Chumash, which is the five books of Moses, Pentateuch. And then I started giving classes. And that was a really big leap for me. And I was very extraordinarily proud of myself because, you know, when you are teaching a class, uh, there's going to be people in that class who are much smarter than you are. And uh, they asked really good questions. And I was terrified about not knowing the answers until I finally came to a place where I realized, hey, I don't have to know the answers. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's okay, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the long and short of it, to cut to the chase, is I'm figuring out God. And uh, the he is fine and the she is fine. The idea of the Adaber Adonai al-Mosheli more that you'll find in most portions of the Torah begins with, and God spoke to Moses. And I will point out to my students, I go, that's really significant because essentially it means that this divine being, this divine thing, this energy, as you said, energy never dies. It's huge energy out there is having a relationship with humankind. How do we define that? At some point in the Torah, God says about Moses, he says, he calls him Riehu. He says, he's my friend, my friend. And you see this friendship happening between God and Moses which is almost like buddy-like in character. I see God is wearing like a baseball hat backwards. You know? <laughs> so I don't, I don't, I really don't have any answers. I only have questions. And, and slowly as I go, um, I guess I'm starting to see some sort of pattern, which is difficult to qualify. But I will say at this point, if God didn't create the world, and if God obviously didn't write the Torah together with Moses, and God didn't create that gorgeous rose that we're just blown away by when we look at, when we study the rose, the flower, the petunia, or whatever it happens to be. Then whoever did, did a damn good job of it, because creation is absolutely stunningly beautiful. That's where I'm at. Right. All right, you know what? We're going we're gonna to stop. We're going to stop. Um, if that's all right with you. Um, for those who tuned in somewhere in the middle, Avram Rosenzweig is who I'm speaking with. And uh, we're going to do this together for, for a while. We're going to have our own chevruta here and uh, and do some thinking about bigger and smaller things as they pass. Um, how do people find you online? Um, best thing, I think, is email. And that's Avram, which is A-V-R-U-M. Dot Rosenzweig, R-O-S-E-N-S-W-E-I-G at gmail.com. Right. So the mistake they'll make is to put a Z instead of an S. Yeah, yeah. My sister married a Rosenzweig with a Z. Right. Not so much confusion. And by the way, I have a website, AvramRosenzweig.com. Right. That's where people can go to. Uh, mine, for anyone interested, RalphBenMurgy.ca. And there you'll see... Uh, uh, spiritual direction and counseling availability. Uh, my book, I thought he was dead, uh, and uh, different different things that I'm doing. So, if you want to get in touch with either of us, if you want to support the podcast, Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, Patreon.com/slash/NTKR, and that's where you can uh, press the little donate button. Um, we'll do this again in a couple of weeks, and uh, I think we'll probably, my inclination will be to talk about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. My uh, suggestion to people always uh, for a good book, uh, getting your head into the high holidays, is uh, This is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared uh, by Rabbi Alan Liu. It's, it's a fabulous book for that. Do you, have, do you have a recommendation for people to prepare themselves? Well, my recommendation is come into the forest with me. I, I'm not entirely comfortable with services in synagogue. I'm becoming more comfortable. So what I've been doing for the last few years is I've been taking about 25 people into Earl Bale's forest, deep into it. And there are rocks set up at the end of a particular trail. And we sit on the rocks. I almost feel like Jacob when he went mm -hmm. to put, it, put his head <laughs> on the rocks. And uh, essentially what I do is I do an hour and a half or two hour service singing the the songs that we all love we all love that and then a lot of talk about introspection a lot of talk about forgiveness and i'll be doing that again this year so that's my recommendation come with me
Excellent. What a wonderful thing to do. I'll tell you the little story to end in. The Petah Tikva uh, synagogue, the Moroccan synagogue that I grew up in, is on Danby Avenue, right across from Earl Bell's Park, a few blocks in. And uh, in the Sephardic tradition, you don't have a two and a half hour break and half half the people don't come back for Nila. But you get a half hour. And so in the half hour, I decided I would go out into Earl Bales and take a walk. So I walked in and then I was in a bit of a, a, a stand of trees, a little patch of forest. And I hear, and I look up and there's a deer. And the deer it sees me. It, it's about to go put its head down to start foraging and it sees me. And my initial reaction is back out of here, back out. And then, no, no, wait, just stay here, just stay. So I stayed still and she looked at me again and then decided he's not going to bug me. She did a little bit of eating and then she just turned and you don't realize how heavy these creatures are. And just bada boom, bada boom, bada boom. And off she went. And, you know, I'm three hours away from eating a vishwela, you know, from eating a candied uh, dough thing that my aunt would always make. And I'd walk back into the synagogue, sit beside my cousin Robin, because I always liked sitting with, with, with him. And then he goes, what's with you? I said, I just saw, like I was out in, in, in Earl Bales, and I, I, I just had this moment with a deer. Yeah. And he just looked at me and he goes, well, you really are hungry. schmuck i'm telling you something i saw a deer but it was a wonderful uh moment that i never forgot all right thank you for your time my friend we'll do this again in in a couple of weeks i look forward Uh, to it thank you me too ralph benrigi is my name not that kind of rabbi avram rosenzweig is with me and you take care of each other and be good and uh Anything you want to say, just go to my website and leave your comments there. Take care. Bye-bye.